This is the Food Factor Podcast, the show that talks about the connection between your health and what you eat or don't eat. I'm your host, Stephanie Mahachek, clinical nutritionist, health coach, science nerd, perma student, and mother of four. I love dogs, babies, and most of all, talking about all things health, wellness, and the weirdness of the human body. Thank you for being here. and welcome to another episode of the Food Factor Podcast. This is a special episode. It is actually a recording of a presentation that I did. So the audio is a little bit different than what it normally sounds like, but I was invited by the South Carolina Educators Association, specifically the Center for Educator Wellness and Learning, to give a presentation. This is actually the second time I've spoken to this group of um, amazing educators who are supporting each other, uh, advocating for policy change, supporting the teachers and the teachers' rights, uh, education promotion in, in many different ways. They're doing some amazing things in the state of South Carolina. And I was honored to be asked a second time to come back and talk more specifically around nutrition and how it can help students. So the first time I talked to them, I talked about how nutrition can help teachers and help with stress management and help with getting you know, proper nutrition in during their day. But this time I was lucky to come back and talk about how nutrition and how kids are being fueled is affecting their brain development, affecting their behavior, affecting their test scores and all that good stuff. So I put together this presentation it's about, uh, it was about 45 minutes or so long. So this is a little bit longer of an episode. Um, but if you are interested in watching the presentation, I will link the, uh, the link to YouTube in the show notes. So you, if you prefer to watch it with the slides and everything, you can do that. Um, otherwise it is the same recording as what I gave at that presentation, but it was really a great opportunity to be able to talk a little bit more about what teachers can do and what they can look for as far as like nutritional possible deficiencies in some of their students based on their behavior and what they're experiencing. But then it also gave some uh, ideas on ways that educators and staff and admins and principals and coaches and, and everybody can help support student nutrition through simple teaching and education and fun, most importantly, fun. So I did give some examples of programs and I did give some examples on um, little tiny things that teachers can do that some of them are even free and just how you talk about food and how you talk about um, healthy eating habits and things like that with the kids. So I will link everything in the show notes as far as the recording as well as links to the South Carolina Educators Association and the Center for Educator Wellness and Learning. If you are wanting to get involved or reach out to them in any way, I will post all of their information below as well. I hope you enjoy learning a little bit about how to properly fuel your students. Uh, you know, when we created the Center for Educator Wellness and Learning last year, it, it, what we're doing is in the title. And the word wellness comes first for a reason. Um, it's because without wellness, you know, it, the learning isn't, you know, what, what, what good does the learning do if, not, if we're not well? So, so I put a place a strong priority on, on wellness in terms of what we do, uh, whether it's psychological wellness or physical wellness. And um, one of the things that we need to have an honest conversation about in terms of our um, educators and students is nutritional wellness. And so that is why I'm so pleased to welcome back to our live stream tonight, Stephanie Mahachek, who is a board certified clinical nutritionist 
with over 12 years in the nutrition and wellness industry. She focuses on getting to the root cause of each symptom and health concern based on clinical science and behavior change. She believes that nutrition needs to, needs to be individual and restrictive dieting is rarely the answer. She helps clients of all ages determine the best way of eating for their body and their lifestyle through targeting nutrition coaching and habit change. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Stephanie onto our live stream tonight. How are you doing, Stephanie? I'm doing so good. Thank you for having me back, Todd. I really appreciate it and I love everything that you are doing. It's amazing to see hopefully the change that you're wanting to see as well. And I'm just so happy to be back. I appreciate that. You know, it's it's wellness is, is something we have to tackle from so many different um, angles. But I really think that, you know, this nutritional wellness, I know for me in my life, getting that right is, is so key. And I struggle with it. You know, I struggle with getting on the right track, staying on the right track. And I know I'm not alone. And I know a lot of educators and a lot of parents and a lot of students, you know, in this world where it's so fast paced, it's so some, sometimes can be such a challenge to really uh, develop a problem proper nutritional plan for themselves and stay on it because it does require some intention. It does require some preparation. So I'm hoping that you can, you know, give us some great tips tonight on how to do that, especially for our students. Last time, I think we talked more about the adults, but tonight I know you're targeting students. So I appreciate that. So I'm going to bring up your slides and just let us go ahead and let's learn together. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. And last time, if, if anyone wanted to catch that, I think you can scroll up in the the live um, replays and everything within the, the channel. Um, but we did focus a little bit more on properly supporting the teachers and the staff and the admins with nutrition. But, you know, my heart lies with kids uh, and, and students and you know, a lot of the um, information that I was trained in and, and work with people on is around adults. But when I've been working with adults for the past 12 years or so, almost all of them say, I wish I had learned this back when I was little. I wish I had more education on this when I was younger. And that's really kind of sparking this kind of shift over in my in what I'm doing um, in my business to focus a little bit more on the kids and the family dynamic in general, because one person trying to make a change within a family around nutrition is a lot harder than, you know, if, if everyone isn't on board. So kind of bringing the whole family involved, whatever that family looks like, um, it can really be beneficial. So that's a lot of what I, I gear my education around as well. So let's dive in. So what we are going to cover today, there's no secret that nutrition is important. I think we all kind of know that at this point. But what seems to have happened is we forget just how crucial and impactful it is until we need to, you know, fix something or we have an illness or there's a disease present. Our priorities when it comes to food have changed over the past couple of generations. And the result is a society that's more unhealthy than ever and whose children now have concentration and behavior and mental health issues along with illnesses that once only were seen in older adults. We're starting to see them present in children now. And there's obviously a lot that we could talk about tonight, um, and there's only you know so much time tonight to, to share. So I wanted to focus on these kind of three areas. And um, I wanna, there's, there's many key areas when it comes to nutrition and kids, but the three that I wanted to primarily tackle today were inflammation, brain health, and the microbiome. 
or gut health. Um, there's also, I want to touch base a little bit on food beliefs and habits and starting that at a young age, and then also the food environment within the schools. And then um, obviously, you know, action or, or all this information is, is useless unless we take action on it. So I did put together a few just basic kind of ideas that I had on taking action. Some of them are very free to do. And, and some things, if you are an educator watching this, or if you're a parent or a coach or anyone involved in kids with kids in any way, um, so there are some ideas that you can do to help take action on that as well. So um, you already gave the bio on me, but I have spent the majority of my life and a whole lot of time and money learning about health and nutrition. And my greatest joy is that last bullet point right there is being the mother of four tiny humans. And because of my training in nutrition and the research that I do, I tend to come at almost everything through a nutritional lens. And when I see what my kids are exposed to when it comes to food and how they're taught and other kids and their friends are taught about food, I see huge opportunities for all of us to make a lifelong impact on these kids' health. And uh, I understand that nutrition in the school system has definitely changed. You know, there's budget cuts, there's funding issues, there's programs cut left and right. But the thing is, kids still need to understand how food interacts with their body. They're bodies still need nutrients, you know, they're growing and, and they still need to learn what to eat. And as parents or grandparents or teachers or coaches, we all have the opportunity to instill a nutritional, what I kind of call a ripple effect onto the kids that we encounter in order to help them establish healthy habits when it comes to food. So let's start off by talking about the impact that poor nutrition has. So one of the, the first key area is the inflammation. You've probably heard of inflammation, um, but what do you think of when you think of inflammation? You probably get that image of like joint pain or, or a bee sting or some other injury. But inflammation is our body's immune system responding to a threat, whether that threat is environmental, like a toxin or a chemical, or it could be internal, like our own hormones, like cortisol and insulin are both very inflammatory when they're in the body in a great amount chronically. Or in terms of what I tend to focus on and what I believe to be our biggest source of information, uh, inflammation is our food choices. So a breakdown real quick on inflammation. There are two forms. There's acute, which is the immediate response to an injury, like uh, the swelling or the redness or the pain or that throbbing feeling. This occurs like if you smash your finger or you stub your toe or you cut yourself, it's the body's internal first responders heading to the scene of the accident. And this occurs to help protect the body and fight off any um, possible invaders like bacteria or, or also protect the surrounding cells and the tissues from further damage. Then there's also the chronic inflammation, which is the source of most chronic conditions that we develop, such as diabetes, depression, hypertension, arthritis. Um, and, and what a lot of families are very familiar with in kids is ADHD and mood disorders. This is all something that is um, nutritional related, or it can have a, a huge impact with nutrition. And the, these symptoms and these diseases are a sign that something is constantly causing our body to be in that state of protection. Something's irritating it. It oftentimes uh, is kind of labeled as like low grade or, or you know, a, a chronic inflammation. So I talk a lot about root cause when it comes to diseases and, and symptoms. You, we always want to figure out what's the root cause. Uh, and getting to the root cause of, a, of, of any condition is important because that's how you can hopefully 
move on from it, cure it, support it, your body in any way. But many times inflammation, if you're listening to, to some of the things out in the news and social media, many times inflammation is labeled as the root cause of disease. But is that true? Do you think that it's the root cause of disease? I mean, I see it all the time on social media that it's inflammation is the root and, and all that. And inflammation is definitely a cause. It's a contributor of almost all of those issues that I mentioned and all the things that we see in kids and adults. But in my opinion, it's not the root cause because something has to cause or trigger the inflammation, which means that that something is the root. So you might be asking then, well, what triggers chronic inflammation? And there are many things that can trigger chronic inflammation. But again, what I focus on are the foods that we're eating and how that's contributing. And our food is barely considered food anymore if you really compare it to generations ago. Much of what has crept its way into our routines and into our schools and into our homes has become incredibly irritating and inflammatory to our bodies. And this irritation has turned into chronic inflammation. And in in many Americans, you see this all the time. And I'll go over a few signs and symptoms in a minute, but I want to spend some of the time today talking about ways that I kind of approach nutrition and inflammation with clients. And you can take this approach as well with your families or your students. So there are some signs and symptoms of inflammation um, in kids that you can look out for if you're a parent or a teacher and and you you can, you kind of, you know, can look out for some of these uh, symptoms in kids. So this would be things like um, kids who have like really irritated skin, if they have acne or psoriasis or eczema, or if they have like cuts or wounds that just don't heal very properly, that's, that's actually a sign of inflammation and some nu- nutritional deficiencies. Also constant headaches. Now, again, headaches can be one of those things that have multiple kind of factors that, that contribute to it. Um, but inflammation is a big part of that. So we, we definitely want to take a look at some food sources there. And if any of the kids in your life have constant stomach aches or other digestive issues, that's also a sign that their gut is unhappy. It's inflamed. And any issues with lack of focus or depression or moodiness or memory issues, again, these all could have other contributors to them, but we definitely want to take a look at the dietary components in that child's life. All right, and nutrition and the brain development. This is a really fascinating topic uh, and an area that I dove rather deep into. Um, but the brain health, especially at the younger ages, are is really, really important for setting the brain up for life. So um, for an example, at the age of two, there is an explosion of synaptic growth in the brain. And, you know, there's wiring and, and synaptic pruning happening. And the brain at this point, is about 75% of its adult size, which is kind of fascinating if you think about those tiny little bodies and holding the 75% of an adult brain. But around the age of 10, so not too much far later than that, a child's brain represents five to 10% of their body weight, but it accounts for up to 50% of their basal metabolic rate or their metabolism. So it's taking up a massive amount of nutrient resources just for the brain. About 50% of the nutrients need to be going to the brain around the age of 10. So synaptic pruning again, uh, and and different neural pathway creations. uh, And as we'll learn in a minute, it's incredibly important for the health of the brain going into adulthood to have some of these nutrients being met. 
Um, all of these connections and neurons that are firing rapidly and creating new pathways during this time not only require enough nutrients to do this properly, but the neurotransmitters and the hormones needed during this process also requires nutrients. So some key nutrients uh, include, but are not limited to, choline, vitamin D, zinc, vitamin B6 and B12, iron, omegas-3s, and different amino acids like tryptophan, tyrosine, valine, leucine, um, just to give you kind of an idea. But many kids, especially kids in America, are deficient in the vast majorities of these, especially vitamin D, choline, and omega-3s. So a lot of, of nutrients needed to help support the brain and the brain health, and a lot of deficiencies happening in America just simply based on the lack of those specific nutrients in the foods that the kids are eating. And one area I want to touch on that comes up a lot is ADHD and ADD in kids. Um, there are, or there has not yet been a tried and true diet specific for ADD and ADHD yet. There have been some, you know, designed for depression disorders and anxiety, but not specifically for ADD and ADHD. However, there definitely are nutritional approaches. Um, that have been shown to be beneficial when it comes to reducing symptoms and, and improving treatments. So we can talk more about these in a couple of slides um, from now. But the ones that are well documented include getting enough of the omega-3s again, um, getting enough zinc, getting enough protein. And protein specifically is because of blood sugar and insulin balancing. So when somebody has ADD or ADHD, it's really important to balance out the insulin and the glucose and the blood sugar. Um, and then avoiding foods like red, red dyes, and, or, or actually any color dyes really, um, and preservatives and chemical exposures to foods. Kids just cannot focus when their bodies are constantly inflamed from foods and their blood sugar is on a roller coaster. So those are the things to definitely look for when, if you have a child that has ADD or ADHD symptoms, that's definitely some nutritional components to look for there. Now I did pull a few studies. Thank you. I did pull a few studies um, around some of the topics that we're talking about tonight. And I just kind of highlighted a few. I know this is really wordy on this slide, but this uh, research, this specific article was from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And the thing that I pulled out of here, it says not only is severe malnutrition and undernutrition a threat to life, but chronic undernutrition results in impaired cognitive abilities that are often not evident until the second or third decade. So again, into adulthood, including effects on behaviors such as self-control that are of critical importance for a su successful and productive life. Now, malnutrition and undernutrition is definitely something that gets misinterpreted. It does not just mean not eating enough food. I think we always we hear malnourished and you think of like a really like skinny, malnourished, failure to thrive type of child. Mal, the, the term, the, the word mal means bad or poor. So this could mean a person who maybe is eating enough food quantity, but it's low in vitamins and minerals. So the quality is poor. They are nutrient poor, which makes the person malnourished. And I, I get this a lot and people kind of scoff at it a lot when a person who is classified as maybe obese or morbidly obese is also labeled as malnourished. It's not what we think of when we think of that term, but when you look at it from a nutrient perspective, 
they're malnourished. They don't ha they're not getting the adequate nutrients that their body actually needs. And as we learned on the last slide, given the high metabolic needs of the brain during the younger years of life, it shouldn't be surprising that having poor nutrient intake in childhood is associated with not only poor cognitive health at that point, but also later in life. So let's jump a little bit to the microbiome or the gut. Now, the microbiome is a topic that deserves its own four hour long lecture. <laughs> like it's, it's very comprehensive and it's very interesting. And I'm happy to come back and talk about that if you want, but um, I'm gonna keep this one kind of shorter and concise. But the microbiome in the gut contains tens of trillions of microbes, which serve an extremely crucial role in how our bodies function. And one of those roles involve the integrity of the actual digestive tract itself, which serves to help absorb nutrients. Most of our nutrient absorption happens in our digestive tract, our, our small intestine and our large intestine. Very, very few happen actually in the stomach, but most of it is in that gut, um, the digestive tract. So, um, when, when that integrity of the digestive tract, the internal lining of the di digestive tract, if that is in a state of inflammation, then some of those nutrients are not able to be absorbed. And that can, uh, it, it also one of its jobs is to keep pathogens and viruses and thing like, things like that that we consume out of our bloodstream. And so um, when you have that lining that's irritated and inflamed, when it's exposed to things like chemicals or sugar or artificial uh, sweeteners or foods, when this happens, that integrity of the gut becomes damaged, which can result in those pathogens getting through. And that can go kind of systemic. You know, if it gets into your bloodstream, you have blood everywhere in your body. So it can kind of flare up allergies and it can cause uh, joint pain and um, it can cause nutrients to not be absorbed. And this is what's commonly known, and maybe you've heard of this, as leaky gut or intestinal hyperpermeability. So you may be familiar with that phrase, and you may also be familiar with the gut-brain connection. If you ever, ever, ever want to go down a rabbit hole of YouTube or you know PubMed or whatever, look up the gut-brain connection or the gut-brain axis. It's a fascinating little rabbit hole you'll go down. But your brain and your gut are connected through many, many nerves, but the, the main one is the vagus nerve. And this is kind of, you can think of it like a two-way communication channel from your gut to your brain and from your brain to your gut. And many neurotransmitters are not only processed and used in your brain, but they are actually created in the gut. So when the gut is inflamed and irritated and you see kids who have a lot of um, gummies or artificially flavored foods or food dyes are very, very irritating to the gut lining, you can start to see that connection between the inflammation from the gut caused by some of the foods and how they're behaving and how their some of their cognitive issues can kind of flare up. Um, so again, serotonin is one of the chemicals and the neurotransmitters uh, that, that is actually produced in the gut. And that's kind of that feel-good, happy chemical that we're all, we all know and love. But also there's one called GABA. And GABA helps keep feelings of anxiety and fear in check. It's kind of that calming neurotransmitter. So without a doubt, if I'm working with a family or a parent or a child who has a behavior issue or symptoms of anxiety or depression, they almost always have a digestive symptom as well. And usually it's in the form of constipation and sometimes it's chronic diarrhea, but 
they always go hand in hand. So when you notice kids in your classroom, if you're a teacher or in your school or in your family who are acting out or not focusing or have other behavioral symptoms, of course, there could be other reasons, you know, if there's a trauma or if there's some sort of life event or change happening, but also definitely take a look at their diet. So some key nutrients for gut health. I think we all kind of assume when I say gut health, we're going to talk about fiber and I am. Fiber is really, really important. And this uh, important nutrient, so many of us, I mean, adults as well, but so many kids and adults and Americans in general are lacking in fiber. Now, there are varying sources of uh, you know, input as far as like how much fiber to actually get for a child. But I personally, in my research and, and what I recommend, I recommend kids get fiber similar to, not exactly, but similar to what an adult gets. And that's around, um, for kids, I would say about 20 grams to 30 grams, depending on the child. Um, and adults, it's about 25, 35, maybe 40 grams, depending you know, on the adults and, and what's going on. Now, this is not medical advice, so you have to seek out your own solution for this. But um, the good bacteria, the reason why fiber is so important, the good bacteria in that microbiome that we just talked about thrive off of fiber. Fiber itself, we don't absorb that. It's not a nutrient that we absorb. The gut bacteria eats it and processes it, and it's good for that. When the gut bacteria breaks down the fiber, they produce gut healing nutrients that also have an anti-inflammatory benefit. So that is why fiber is super, super important. And when we are not getting enough fiber in our diet through you know, whole grains, if you can tolerate grains or fruits and veggies, of course, are a big source. Nuts and seeds are a big source of fiber. If you're not getting enough of those foods, or if your kids are not getting enough of those foods, that can cause a lack of fiber in the diet. It can throw off the balance in the microbiome, and it can cause inflammation and, and certain anti-inflammatory things to not get made. So also some other nutrients that are important for the gut health would be zinc. Again, there's a common, common thread here. Zinc again, vitamin A, antioxidants like vitamin C, E, and D, and also some herbs are super important and helpful for gut health as well. So when working with kids or adults who have inflammation and gut issues, uh, I'm only talking about inflammation issues right now. Uh, I take kind of a two-step approach. If you're dealing with gut healing and, and you know, that's more of like a five-step approach, but inflammation has a two-step approach and feel free to use this with your friends <laughs> if you want. Um, the, so the first step is you have to look at what's causing the inflammation. What foods, and again, I tend to focus on foods, but what foods are inflaming a person or a child? So this could be pesticides on a food. Certain foods are definitely more uh, better to have organic. Um, this could be artificial ingredients. This could be gluten. This could be other foods that they're sensitive to. Maybe it's dairy, maybe it's egg, maybe it's something else. Each person, of course, is gonna be a little bit different, but starting there helps to give the body a break and allow to have it heal itself and start absorbing those nutrients again. Um, kind of a back backtrack to the uh, leaky gut situation. Um, a lot of times people will bring their at-home food sensitivity tests to me and they'll say, look, I'm, a, I'm, I'm sensitive to all these 40 different foods or 80 different foods or what have you. And that to me, all that means is that you have leaky gut because everything you're ingesting 
is passing through and it's inflaming your body. So you're going to react to anything. Once your gut is healed, you're not going to be reacting to those 40 or 80 foods. You need to just heal your gut. So um, if you've ever had one of those tests done and that showed for you, look into some gut healing protocols. Um, but so, okay, so the first step is figuring out what's causing the irritation. What foods are, are you or them getting in their diet that's possibly causing an irritation? Then we want to work on taming the flame, as, as I like to say. You want to you want to tame that flame and start getting and incorporating more foods that provide those key nutrients for gut healing. Um, so that uh, a lot of people will focus on like the macronutrients. That's a big thing. Focus on your macros. Get your macros, which are of course are the fats, the proteins, and the carbs. But almost even more important than the macros are going to be your micronutrients. So vitamins A, B, D, all of those things and antioxidants. So you hear about anti-inflammatory diets a lot and and they are definitely beneficial. Um, But instead of labeling how you're going to switch your eating to it, you know, as a diet, I like to look at these more like (laughs) add-ins, you know, it's not what about what you're removing and taking away, especially when it comes to children. It's about what you're adding in. You get to add in all these bright colored fruits and vegetables. You get to add in all these healthy fats. You get to add in all these good quality protein sources, you know, plant-based and animal-based if if they eat them. Um, All all of that help to provide nutrients that are anti-inflammatory and high in antioxidants, which of course help to reduce the inflammation. And also I wanted to throw this in there, hydration. It's it's so important, but it's often overlooked in kids as well as adults, but, uh, but it's super important, not only for your gut health and keeping things moving, but also for detoxification, for focus and alertness as well. And one thing I wanna to add to hydration, and it's not always about um, drinking your water. I think I mentioned this in the present, the, the last presentation for, for teachers who can't take bathroom breaks all the time, or for kids who can't take bathroom breaks all the time, focusing on eating your water can sometimes help as well. So getting good sources of hydrating foods like cucumbers and different vegetables, you know, the vegetables that you cut that have like juice that or water that kind of comes out of them, like bell peppers and things like that. If you're able to get more of those sources in your day, you will get some, some more hydration in as well. So you may be thinking, well, that's all well and good and, and everything, but my kid won't eat fruits and vegetables or my kid's a picky eater or I'm a teacher and I don't have much of a say in what these kids are eating. So I hope in the next couple of slides, um, I, I could kind of give you some ways or ideas on how you can maybe shift that thinking. So food beliefs and habits is one of my favorite things to talk about, honestly, but it's, it's so important and it's so interesting and fascinating where we get our beliefs and our habits from. Children learn by modeling. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that, especially if you're teachers, but children learn by modeling. So we all have picked up on habits and beliefs around a variety of things from the people around us, especially when we're growing up. I work with many adults, like I said, who who wish that they could unlearn. And that's what we're working on. We're working on unlearning some of the habits and the beliefs around food that weren't even their beliefs to begin with. They inherited them from their caregivers or parents or people in their lives as a young child who maybe had their own struggles with food and their own perspectives around food. So it's a lot of unlearning some of those habits. Um, So what kids that are in your life, 
You know, whether you're a teacher or a coach or a principal or a parent or a babysitter or a caregiver in any way, these kids are observing us and they hear us and they model us and they can inherit our perspectives around food. An example may be if you grew up with older siblings or cousins or parents who were constantly dieting or talking about dieting. You may just assume that that's what adults do and maybe you picked up on some dieting habits at an early age. A personal example of this is when I was growing up, we never ate fish. And you know, maybe canned tuna here and there once in a while, but never like salmon or tilapia or any of the good stuff. My parents didn't like it, or at least they didn't like cooking it. So I grew up hearing other people talk about fish and talk about eating fish, and I'd just be like, gross, I don't, I don't like fish. And it wasn't until I was in college when my boyfriend, now husband, cooked me salmon, and I realized it's awesome. <laughs> I actually love it. And now we have it weekly, and my kids love it as well. So, But I inherited that belief around fish. I see, I also see that a lot with kids and vegetables. Maybe one parent doesn't like peas, for example, and the kids see the parent avoid the peas and now they don't like peas or they think they don't like them or they're not even going to try it. So it happens more often than you might think, or maybe you maybe you are well aware of how often it happens. And I don't mean to make anybody feel bad about anything. I, I actually want to show you how much of a positive influence this could be because we can also help our kids have supportive habits from an early age. So things like always having a veggie or two with dinner, having water with every meal, or talking about nutrients and what they do for the body can all open up the door and set the stage for healthy and supportive habits. I think of this like planting the seed. You know, I'm always planting seeds of health with my kids and the kids I work with. Just because you make carrots one night and they don't eat them (laughs) doesn't mean it's a failure. It is planting the seeds. Habits form through repetition. Like you can't form a habit by doing something once. You plant the seed, you nurture it, and it'll grow. So I, that's how I look at, at health habits as well. So um, real quickly, we've covered three key areas of nutrition. So we covered the inflammation, we covered the brain, and we covered the microbiome, and we've talked about what to focus on when it comes to the types of foods that kids need. We've talked about food beliefs and habits. So now let's talk about the food environment in the schools and how this can influence their, your kid's perspective on food and the lasting impact it can have on their health. So kids go to school to be taught lessons that they use for the rest of their lives. You teach them to read, to write, to make friends, to give presentations, to add and subtract things. They also learn how to eat based on their environment, regardless if there is a structured nutritional program or education in the school, they are still picking up on this. So how is the food environment in your school or in your kid's school? Are there healthy options not only available, but advertised and promoted? Are, are there water bottle filling stations or, or are there just Gatorade or juice vending machines? I see this in high schools a lot. Um, you know, what kind of, of things are encouraged? Is it, is it chocolate milk at lunch or is it regular milk or is it water? You know, are all of these things are, are really important. What's the conversation like around food? Are things labeled as good or bad? 
You know, that's a big one. A lot of people do this. I sometimes catch myself still saying that something is good or bad. And, and really, it's not good or bad. Nothing is off limits. Nothing. There's room for most things in most people's lives. But it's, is it supporting you or is it just kind of not, <laughs> you know? So the different phrasing and different ways of thinking about that. Um, are nutrients discussed at all in, in school, in, in the classroom? Are symptoms uh, that kids are experiencing like, low energy or, um, you know, headaches or digestive issues, are they being connected with food choices that they're making? You know, it, teachers can definitely bring this up. Are teachers talking about their own negative beliefs around food in front of the students? Sometimes even one-off comments about donuts or about, I can't have this, or I'm not eating that. They're seemingly innocent. And you maybe think that, oh, this is just banter between, you know, colleagues or friends or whatever but kids are always listening. So how are students talking about food with each other? And how are kids being treated if they make certain food choices? I have a quick story on this. Um, one of my kids at the time, this was a few years ago, she was six and she started eating salads at home. We didn't force it, she just kind of started eating them. And we discussed this and said, oh, you must be growing because you're wanting more and more salad. And, um, you know, didn't think much of it, but she, we, we explained how vegetables kind of work and how they help the body grow and all of that. And she went to school the next day and chose a salad at lunch. And she came home almost in tears. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, kids made fun of me because I was the only one who picked salad today at lunch. And I go, well, what did you tell them? And she said, it's because I'm growing and my body needs nutrients to grow and the salad gives me nutrients. And the next day, wouldn't you know it, she comes home and is beaming with joy. And she said that every single kid in her class chose the salad that day. So again, not something that we enforced, just a simple conversation around the benefits of certain foods. She made that choice on her own. And, and it had a ripple effect into other people's choices around her. So one thing I've seen a lot and I remember this when I was in elementary school was uh, candies and treats that were used as a reward. One second. Can you go in the other room, please? Thank you. Okay, thank you. So, okay. You know, kids. <laughs> so, um, but re food as rewards. And so like if you got an A on something or if um, you were good with the sub, you know, that you get a, you get candy or holiday celebrations or fundraisers, you know, everything is around Chick-fil-A or like all these like, you know, Papa John's night and stuff like that, which is fine. There's always, like I said, room for those types of foods. Uh, and part of it's cultural, honestly. You know, I grew up in the in the north, and I came to the south, and there's a big culture change around food. But this can also be an area to spend some time focusing on. You know, instead of candy, I've seen some teachers have uh, prize boxes that have stickers and pencils and bracelets and stuff like that. How else could schools, in your opinion, optimize some of those non-food related rewards? Uh, and, and implement them a little bit more on a regular basis. And I want to mention, again, I'm not um, anti-sugar or anti-treats. I think teaching kids and adults, for that matter, about balance is important. But at this point in time, you have to you have to know that kids are bombarded with excess sugar and chemicals every time they make a food choice. 
And sometimes it's known, like when they're going to make the choice to have a cookie or a cupcake, they know that there's going to be some sugar and, and things in that. And sometimes it's hidden and branded as healthy, like when they have a granola bar or a sports drink. So my message is more around educating kids and, and parents and teachers on making the, bed, the best um, food choices for what your body needs and finding that balance with the treats and creating healthy habits around the more supportive foods. So here's another uh, article, um, and this is from the Journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics that talks about the close link between inflammation caused by malnutrition and how it can lead to an altered microbiome, but also how an altered microbiome can lead to malnutrition and more inflammation, specifically in the critical elementary and middle school years. And as we discussed, this systemic inflammation can lead to behavior issues and mood disorders and chronic conditions and cognitive issues and brain dysfunction that extends far beyond the school age years. So it includes that responsive um, caregiver and, and early nutritional um, intervention and education. It, it shows in this article that it has a positive impact on children's health and well-being. And despite knowing this, there are still uh, intervention, there, there aren't as many interventions as there should be. So what do we do about this? We know that nutrition is important. We see that it's affecting our kids. What do we do? Do we push it to the back burner and ignore it? Or do we take some action in whatever capacity we can and make tiny shifts towards better health? I'm all for the latter. And I've seen firsthand that it doesn't take much to make a huge shift in a child's perspective around nutrition. Nutrition education works. There are multiple studies. I actually put some in the resources at the end of this uh, uh, lecture or slides um, that show this. And, and I've... You know, I, I've actually experienced this firsthand when I've done some education with a group of kids myself. They they start to make different choices based on what you're what you're sharing with them. Um, and you know, one of one of the times that this was impactful for me as a nutritionist was when I was with a group of kids around um, ages five through thirteen. I think there are a bunch of athletes, and we did just simple five to ten minute. Before a practice, I gave them some information on some simple nutritional tips, things like eating veggies, things like eating protein, getting hydration, super simple. And one of the five-year-olds came to me the next day and said, I ate broccoli. I was like, hey, awesome. Good for you. Yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't connect it. But her mom came up to me afterwards and said, you don't understand. I've been trying to get her to eat broccoli for years. She's like, how did you do that? What did you say to her? <laughs> What's your magic? And I said, I didn't tell her to eat broccoli. I simply showed her and taught her and talked about the benefits of green things. And it just so happened that the green thing that she chose to eat was broccoli that night. So it's simple It's simple education like that, that you don't need a big, huge, fancy degree to teach them. It's, it's showing them the positive impact that food can have on, um, on your body. So um, one of the studies that, that showed that um, kids ages 5 to 11, they took two controlled schools, one, one control school, one intervention school, and the students were given a survey about fruits and veggies before um, the study was done. And then they were given information and education 
around certain fruits and vegetables as well as you know samples each week and were encouraged through their peers and through teachers to give their opinions on the samples which meant they had to try the sample and as you can imagine the post study survey showed that the reduction in what's called neophobia to foods or new food fears fears of new foods was reduced and a greater likelihood uh, happened that the, the kids actually ate the foods. So again, it's really interesting stuff. There's some studies at the end of this that, that I can post, but um, some school districts that I have seen have started implementing great programs around nutrition and obviously budgets for things like that, I'm sure are a hot topic and I'm no expert in school budget, so I don't know. But let's talk about ways that you can implement some of these nutrition education things in a reduced cost way or, or even a free way. And one idea is National Nutrition Month is in March, it's next month, it's coming up. So it's a short notice, but you can implement a nutrition week. If you are a teacher, if you, are, you have a school that you can promote things like this, you can pick a different food and nutrient each day and do a quick talk about how it helps the body and kids can dress up in that color or you know handouts. You guys are way more creative than I am. But samples and recipes can be sent home and given out and, and kind of incorporated at home and they can choose to do those or not. Um, of course, I might have a little bit of cost to it because of the handouts, but another idea is one that I'm actually working on with a school in my area where I'm giving a talk around nu what nutrients each colors in the foods and or fruits and vegetables do and what they do for the body. We're learning about reading food labels. We're learning about, um, uh, we're doing exercises on simple snacks to make that kids of any age can make and focusing on seasonal veggies and how they grow and how to cook them and how they help your body. And I'm happy to discuss more ideas with anybody if you're interested. Um, but also some free ideas. Teachers are some of the most encouraging people on the planet. Like you guys have a superpower beyond superpowers. Um, and finding ways to encourage kids to try new foods without telling them to try new foods. You know, you can say things like, you're such an adventurous eater or you're you're good for you for trying that. And it can have a huge ripple effect because all of a sudden other kids want to see, well, I want to be good at that too. You know, they, they that ripple effect can happen. Uh, and you can also open up the conversation around your favorite healthy things and healthy foods. And you could even have students bring in like their favorite healthy recipes and make a class cookbook or encourage healthy snacks to be brought in and, um, and maybe switch over to giving out pencils or non-food rewards instead of candy and find ways to use um, healthy foods and lesson plans like math, you know, two apples plus four oranges, whatever. Um, again, you're way more creative than I am, but you can also ask your kids what veggies they had at lunch and get the conversation going around that. I've had teachers do an actual game and keep tabs on who's having veggies at lunch and things like that, just to promote it and just to encourage that that um, engagement with the, with the veggies. So that unspoken kind of positive effect to peer pressure can go a long way when it comes to healthier eating. So, and one last thing I wanna point out is that depending on the age of your child or the level of the school that you're, you're teaching at, there can be very different approaches to take when it comes to nutrition. So for example, I've, I've spoken with multiple schools in my area in the upstate, um, and each school is noticing something different as far as nutritional support that they need. So the middle schools that I spoke with have issues with kids not eating or they're restricting food, even if it's free. Uh, and then the high schools have issues with excessive eating or poor food choices, more of that malnourishment type of thing that we were talking about earlier. And then the elementary school has its own kind of issues more around the food phobic type of behaviors and needing more just simple basic education. So it really takes some assessment of the environment 
and what is being noticed to help put together uh, an effective plan. One last research study, I swear, I, I have a bunch, but these are just so fascinating. So this is another one that shows the positive effect of a multi-component school-based nutrition education program or intervention and, and what it has on the kids. So it's stated that the school is a key environment when it comes to shaping children's eating patterns. As children from different backgrounds come together regularly at school for several of their critical developmental years under the guidance of teachers who can serve as role models and schools play an important role in the promotion of children's fruit and vegetable intake. So again, you do not need to have an advanced degree in nutrition to make an impact on the kids around you. Simply opening up the conversation and um, making a supportive environment can have a huge impact on, on the outcome that, that the kids are looking for. Um, so there's a, a big difference to when a child knows the why behind something, but there's an even bigger phenomenon around having a teacher or a coach or an adult that they look up to tell them the why. So I, my own children don't listen to me half the time around nutrition stuff, but they listen to their teachers and they listen to their coaches. So they listen to you when they may not listen to their own parents. And so when you are creating your lesson plans and thinking about things, hopefully this gave you some uh, ideas on how you can just make simple swap-ins and, and help encourage them in, in different ways um, to have that lasting impact. So I will stay on for some questions. I don't know what our, our time is at, and I can pull up the chat in a second. It, it deleted when I um, clicked on my screen. But um, if you want to get a hold of me, my email is listed right here. I'm available to help you know schools implement or, or create nutrition education plans that fits your needs or consult on anything in, in, any, in any way. I also have a few free handouts on my website under the freebies tab. And if you want to go check out some of those. And I do have a podcast every week talking about various nutrition topics. So you're welcome to listen and subscribe to that as well. And just for fun in March, I'll be doing a virtual cooking class for kids where I teach them how to make energy balls and explain how the nutrients in and the ingredients will help their bodies. And it's kind of just a pay what you want type of class. So I'm trying to make it available to as many people as possible. And more will be posted about this on my social media uh, channels on Facebook and Instagram that are listed there. So you can uh, follow me on there to get the updates on that as well. So I am open to questions, Todd, if you, if we still have the time for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, first of all, thanks. That's a lot of great information. And one of the things that I've, I've, you know, I, I haven't been in the classroom for a while, but when I was teaching, I was, I, one of the things I was alarmed about was I would see students whose their, their lunch essentially was, they would ask just ask for a plate full of fries and then they would take ranch dressing and then it was basically ranch dressing and french fries was their lunch mm -hmm. um, and i was trying to figure out how do we how do we reprogram this like how do we um help young people make better choices because the you know if ranch dressing on french fries tastes really good mm -hmm. and, and they, they like it better than say you know a salad or you know apples or oranges and they would put out the you know i went and spoke with the cafeteria staff and they have you know they're under all these guidelines for what they need to put out and uh you know they put out fresh fruits like bananas and oranges and apples and they would just go end up not being taken mm -hmm. and then you know put a lot of this produce out um <laughs> 
I don't know. I don't know what you can do about that. But I just yeah. how do we how do we at the school level? What would your recommendation at the school level? How do we prioritize talking about nutrition more to students and making helping them guide them to making better choices? One of the key things that I have found, especially when dealing with the school age group, is they have to understand the why and they have to connect it with a goal that they have. So for example, um, my son likes superheroes. One of my daughters likes princesses. One of my other daughters is an athlete. So we talk about like, this banana will help you run fast. This um, apple will help your hair grow long like a princess. This, you know, fill in the blank. This cucumber is going to help you run super fast and fight crime, you know, whatever it is. Um, but really tying it to what is important to them. It's not so much like you need to eat this because you need to get all your fiber. Cause the lady said, you know, it's more like, how is this going to help your body and in doing it in a way that they actually care about. And that's where I think a lot, that's where the teachers have such a strong pull in that, in that realm because you they're on the front lines they're seeing these kids every day they are understanding like hey this one really likes science so we're going to talk about the science and what it does in our body talk about the microbiome like they might really dig that this one likes more art so let's paint pictures and let's talk about the bright colors and the the nutrients and what gives those certain foods the bright colors and how that's so cool and what it does in our body and what that's going to make you know so really attaching it to what they're passionate about is going to be really helpful for that because of course peer pressure especially when you start to get into the the middle school and the high school years peer pressure is going to take over and it's like like the story of my daughter like she wasn't at that age yet or that stage yet but she um she probably wouldn't have in high school chosen the salad she probably just would have gone with the flow so i would say even too if there are some um some more influential kids in the classroom that maybe have a little bit more for whatever reason draw from the other kids that might be something to have them be like the ambassadors and have them be like the the health ambassadors for the class and help them to promote the veggies you know peer-to-peer kind of interaction like that might be might go a long way yeah I really like that you brought up the micro gut microbiome because that was something that I didn't really know about a year or two ago. Like I started to hear about it maybe a couple of years ago and then it really got on my radar this past year when I was having some digestive issues. Mm-hmm. And when I started to research that topic, it was I was I was just shocked to find out that essentially like there is a there is, you know, the enteric nervous system that's in, in your gut that communicates with your brain and that I, I posted from uh, Johns Hopkins website the brain uh, an article about the the brain gut connection and and you know we used to think that it was uh, you know the anxiety and depression those things caused those digestive issues and now we're learning that maybe part of that is in the reverse that that is our gut issues that are that are causing some of these mental health issues mm-hmm. is that is that Am I describing that correctly? Yeah, it, it can definitely be a two-way street. It's almost like a chicken and the egg situation. It's like, okay, you have anxiety or depression, or we've all kind of felt butterflies in our stomach if we get nervous about something. That's that's that connection too. Um, but the the conversation could be, well, if 
the microbiome was better balanced or if those neurotransmitters uh, were producing GABA and that was helping to calm that anxiety and some of that, would that still be as, as strong of a thing? So yeah, there's, I think we're in the infancy of figuring out exactly what the microbiome can do and what it does. More and more studies and research are coming out regularly, which is awesome to see, but I think we're at like just the, the tip of the iceberg as far as like how cool and how in, in, involved the the gut is with everything in our body yeah so i started drinking kombucha because of that so i wanted I, yeah. i'm not a big fan of kimchi and fermented foods but i can i can down a, a kombucha good for so, you uh, hey fun yeah. fact about kombucha you can look on the label and i'm always telling people about reading labels and seeing and we're looking for sugar and added sugar and all of that and you'll see added sugar on the uh, nutrition label you're not getting any of that that's actually to keep the bacteria alive so, so when you okay. see grams of sugar on there, don't worry. That's to keep the bacteria alive, so that when you drink it, they'll be alive. Okay, that's good to know because I did. I got like a zero sugar uh, kombucha at Costco the other day, but I don't have to worry about. You're saying you don't have to worry about the sugar in the regular kombucha. Not really. I mean, if it's hard to tell, like, well, what is left over from the bacteria, and what's actually going to go in my body? It's hard to tell, um, yes. but. Sugar-free kombucha? That sounds like you're just drinking a bunch of dead bacteria. <laughs> but I don't know. I haven't looked into that. Pretty good. Check it out. Okay. I'll check it out. Brand. It's called Hum. H-U-M. Oh, yeah. I've seen that brand. Yeah. 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 Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for your time. I want to uh, honor that, you know, we're, we're, I told you we'd be done by eight. And I, I appreciate it. A lot of really good tips. And I think, um, you know, so critical for young people and for educators uh, to understand the importance of the uh, role that nu- nutrition plays in, in, in how we feel, uh, you know, just, just our energy levels, uh, our mood, and, um, and making that connection is, is critical because when we go into school, you know, we want to have the energy to learn. We want to have, we want to be in the mood to learn. And nutrition helps set the table for great learning and teaching to take place. And uh, without it, I'm, I, we're, you know, we're going to struggle. So, yeah. Um, really big piece of the puzzle here is getting our nutrition right. So thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me back. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care, Steph. That was Stephanie Mahachek. Um, Again, her uh, website, foodfactornutrition.com is uh, posted in the comments for you. You should be able to access that. I want to thank her. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Food Factor Podcast. It is my personal mission to help people make the best food choices that they can for their particular situation. So if you found this episode helpful, I would be so grateful if you would share it with a friend or a family member or somebody who needs to hear this information and also leave me a review. Those are the things that help get this podcast seen and heard by more people who could use the help as well. I really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening.